and welcome to Top in Tech. I'm Megan Stagman, Director for TNT at Global Council and part-time host of this podcast alongside my colleagues, Conan and Anna. Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Josh Bates, who I attended the World Economic Forum's Davos conference with last week. And Josh has been a few times now, so is perfectly placed to give us his insights. So, Josh, I think perhaps to get us started, it's worth just doing a little bit of a level set on what exactly Davos is. I've heard a lot of misconceptions over the years that WEF is actually maybe part of the UN, that only politicians can get into the conference. So amidst all of these rumours that are not true, perhaps it's worth you just telling us a little bit about how long has it been running, who are the WEF and why are they credentialed to run this, what sort of things on the agenda and what sort of people attend. Sure. And as you say, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting is something where there's a lot of misunderstanding about. Some people assume it's some sort of official international organization, perhaps funded or organized by the UN, but is in fact a purely private organization. It was a not-for-profit founded by Klaus Schwab in 1971, who still runs the World Economic Forum to this day at the age of 85. And it was founded as an international organization for public-private cooperation. So bringing together governments, businesses from around the world to address some of the big challenges expected to come in the following year, in the following years, to talk about geopolitical issues, to try and convene some of the biggest and most important leaders throughout the world to try and actually solve some of the issues that we're most struggling to grasp and get a hold of. The World Economic Forum is based in Geneva, Switzerland, and the annual forum that they organise is always held in Davos, this small Swiss village up in the Alps. It's typically just a ski resort. And each year in January, this event is held with representatives from its roughly a thousand members coming together alongside government organizations and government representatives to discuss these issues. Great. Thank you. And I think one of the things you mentioned there is that it has grown year on year. As a man who, as I said, can be now considered somewhat of a Davos veteran, (laughs) um, how do you think it's been different this year from previous years when you've been? Bearing in mind that, of course, one of them was perhaps COVID and therefore not a normal representation. The annual forum, as you might expect, happens every year. In January, year on year, it's sort of increased in importance up to, as you mentioned, the COVID. In 2021, the annual forum was cancelled. In 2022, they postponed it until the summer, which saw a much reduced attendance. And since 2022, I think it's been a bit of a rebuild back to what Davos was pre-pandemic, pre-COVID. This year saw the first sort of significant attendance from Chinese government representatives. It saw the promenade, which is the main street running through Davos, absolutely packed with businesses and their stalls and their showrooms sort of showing what they're about for meeting rooms, to organize events, to organize parties. And this year we saw 3,000 roughly official participants. These are people who are actually registered to attend the Congress Center and the forum discussions. But beyond that, I think we saw somewhere in the realm of about 30,000 people in Davos, including sort of contractors, support staff, other people there to join the discussions and join the broader fringe events. And considering the Swiss village has a typical population of somewhere around, so I think it's like about 11,000 people, it gets pretty packed out. And this year in particular felt incredibly busy and incredibly well attended. And I think it's interesting to note as well, the different types of attendees that seem to be coming as well. 
it seemed to me at least that certain countries were better represented than I'd heard about from previous years. So for example, a sizable uh, Chinese delegation there, I think they had 10 state ministers there from Beijing. Meanwhile, a number of Indian states had their own stalls in addition to the national one, multiple stalls uh, on the promenade from Saudi Arabia, for example. So I think perhaps in contrast with previously, we're seeing less of just the typical European and US presence. I guess in addition to the growing presence of those states, there's one which seems very notably absent. And Russia obviously used to have its own house there, from what I understand. And now for the second year in a row, Western sanctions have prevented Russian officials and oligarchs from attending Davos. And what was the previous prominent Russian house has now become the AI house, which I would like to come back onto properly in a minute. But given that, the fact that President Zelensky was undoubtedly still one of the main celebrities at the conference, I think he stopped all traffic for at least a few hours on Tuesday and had various high profile meetings. My question to you is, do you think the characterization of the so-called Davos man, in Samuel Huntington's words from 2004, is actually accurate? Obviously painted this picture of the kind of people that go to Davos is that they don't care about national loyalties and boundaries. Does geopolitics still matter in Davos? I think geopolitics was a really important theme running throughout this entire Davos. I mean, as it does every year, but this year in particular... Each year, there's a central sort of theme that the WEF put forward, and this year it was all about rebuilding trust. And you can see how important that theme was this year, both in terms of increasing international disputes, but then also sort of as you touched upon the fact that this year is an incredibly important one in terms of global elections, in terms of misinformation, in terms of AI. As you say, this again was a year where Russia was barred from any official representation at Davos. Interestingly, in the past, the Russia house that you mentioned became the Russian war crimes house. As you say, it was the AI house this year, but the Ukraine house was a sort of key place, had a key place on the promenade. Zelensky himself addressed the forum, which was a sort of really centerpiece event. But other sort of geopolitical issues, Israel, Palestine continued to sort of happen and be discussed on the fringes and in some of the speeches at the forum itself. So there was no getting away from the fact that whilst people maybe wanted to talk more about broader global political issues that are affecting everybody, climate change, AI, tech, the economy, these sort of individual geopolitical tensions and concerns dominated a lot of the discussions that I sat in and in on. And I think two things from what you just said there that are interesting to me. Firstly, you say about climate change, I guess would be interesting. I don't think I actually saw a lot of conversation about climate change, to be honest, at Davos whether that was because the COP conference had happened recently and people felt that that had now been ticked off, I don't know, but would be interested to hear if perhaps you saw more of that. And then I would like to come back to the point you raised about elections, but perhaps if you can just first answer that point around climate change, do you think there's still a place for it in 2024, Davos? I think there were some interesting discussions being held on climate change, but compared to previous years, I really didn't think it had that important place that it should have within the discussions. I mean, you had the likes of Jane Goodall, for instance, who have sort of a big place in the world. And when it comes to discussions about biodiversity and the climate there, you had several sort of side panels and fringes on this. But I think, as you say, there was a sense that we've done COP, we achieved more than we thought we would there. Let's move on to other issues. And I know we're going to talk about it later, but I really think AI flooded out a lot of other issues that are typically discussed at Davos. And there was a sense of everybody wanting to sort of jump on this new trend as opposed to sort of rehashing climate debates that have been held at previous conferences and at previous Davos sessions. 
Yeah, makes sense. I think aligns with my own impression as well. So yeah, so coming back to this question of elections, you raised the point that this is going to be a year of a number of big ones, but we also saw not only the kind of incumbents, but I think a lot of figures representing opposition parties at Davos this year. Saw Rachel Reeves and Johnny Reynolds from the UK's Labour Party. They were doing the rounds on meeting various execs. Um, I think they were wide reporting about their their presence at a JP Morgan roundtable. And then on the US side, although less formally and officially affiliated with Trump, there was, I think you and I saw former comms chief Scaramucci <laughs> coming out of a restaurant. Uh, there was Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, doing the rounds in terms of business meetings. So is Davos the place to be to kind of set out your stall ahead of an election? Is it your impression that actually perhaps there's more opposition candidates at Davos this year than incumbents? Do you think they were doing an effective job of it? Yeah, I mean, political attendance at Davos is a bit of a touchy subject because especially if you've got an election coming up in the coming weeks, the coming months, pictures taken of you in a ski resort up in the Swiss Alps don't always go down well with the electorate, especially if there's concerns around cost of living, around the economy. So I think each year politicians take quite a careful look at whether or not they should attend. For instance, Indonesia typically has a very large delegation, holds a party on one of the nights at Davos. This year, I think there was maybe one, perhaps two ministers from Indonesia as they have elections in the coming weeks. Rishi Sunak didn't attend last year, didn't attend this year either. Again, because I think there's some fear around how that could be perceived. But you did see David Cameron, you saw Jeremy Hunt in attendance. But it was quite funny watching the Labour Party sort of show the fact that they were in Davos. I think it was maybe the Tuesday they arrived, um, attending meetings, going to events, meeting businesses, and basically stating the government's not here yet. Hunt didn't arrive until the Thursday, I believe, which is the last real day of the conference. I think for a lot of opposition parties, they see it as an opportunity to really engage with the highest level of business, set out their stall to them, but then, especially in Labour's case, really set out the stall to the electorate that we are now the party of business, we are the party that's engaging with business, and sort of posing the question of, well, why isn't the Prime Minister here? Why isn't the government here? It always places politicians in a difficult position where do they go and do they engage with businesses and other leaders and perhaps risk the ire of the uh, electorate? Um, or do they stay at home and then risk the opposition party sort of highlighting their absence? Great. Thank you. Another thing that I would like to come back to, which you mentioned already, was AI. I think it would be remiss on a podcast called Top in Tech not to talk about what I would at least designate the unofficial theme of this year's Davos. As you said, the official theme was rebuilding trust, but I think arguably AI is so central to that at the moment that the two are pretty inextricably linked. So. We've seen probably over the last year and documented in many of these top in tech podcasts, discussions fluctuate between a focus on existential risk. On the one hand, we obviously saw this most notably around the AI summit in the UK, but in other governments as well. And then a frenzy to build national competitiveness and build AI resources and capability on the other. And sometimes confusingly for business, these two things are happening side by side. So what would you say the tenor of debate was in Davos? Was there a focus on one over the other? Or again, as we've seen previously, the two happening concurrently? So I, I can't agree with you more that AI was the unofficial sort of focus of Davos this year. I mean, I, I don't think there was a single organization or event organizer who didn't have AI at some part of their schedule or at some part of the debate. I don't think that there was any big key takeaway or conclusion about 
AI and international AI policy from this Davos. I think, as you say, there was a lot of discussion about how and when to regulate. There was quite a lot of interesting debate about whether you regulate the data underpinning AI, though there were concerns that this could then sort of stifle innovation. I saw the CEO of the Dubai Future Foundation suggesting that instead it should be the sub-effect of AI that could be regulated and focused on. And Brad Smith of Microsoft coming forward and saying that actually a lot of the things where AI are going to have impact and influence are already regulated. Online safety, digital competition, data protection, cybersecurity... These are areas where regulation already exists, and as he was arguing, already greatly will have the same amount of impact on AI as they would any form of new technology in this area. But my perception that there was still a sense of, let's wait and see with AI. There are a lot of companies sort of waiting to see how AI develops over the next year or two, what products are created, taking this sort of wait and see approach. But there was also quite a bit of emphasis from some of the leaders I'm seeing on making sure that you are prepared for AI, cleaning up your data ensuring that when these AI products come to market and when they are ready to fully be implemented, companies can really get to grasp with them and fully implement them across their businesses. Yeah, interesting. And I think that stuff about wait and see on regulation and governance, definitely something that I kind of noticed as well. I think notably, there weren't that many people there from the EU commission. I mean, I think Eurova was there. But I think that was obviously an opportunity to show off the the recently concluded or nearly recently concluded EU AI Act a bit. But I don't think we heard that much about it. If anything, I heard from a lot of international voices that they didn't want to rush into regulation and stifle innovation too much. For example, was speaking to the Japanese digital minister, Taro Kono, and he was saying it's very easy to get caught up in the European rhetoric around we need more regulation and actually we need it yesterday. And actually his view was we don't need more regulation. We need better understanding and research within government, more transparency from companies, but not necessarily regulation per se. And he was also saying that warning against ASEAN countries just automatically copying Europe, perhaps as he would, given he's a Japanese minister, but saying that that had happened a lot with GDPR. And then these ASEAN states tried to implement a regulation that wasn't designed for them, that they don't have the right regulatory architecture for. And if something happened like that, again, with AI, it would just lead to quite a mismatch and a a poor regulatory regime. I'd agree. And I'd I'd just add that I think there was this desire and sense across a lot of the businesses that I spoke to and attended panels of that what they want is stability, both within individual regions, countries, but also internationally. And I think there's some concern, as you say, that there are so many different international organizations and governments pushing ahead with AI regulation at the moment, whether that be through the UN, the G7, the EU, the UK's AI white paper response that we're waiting for, that there's just this sense that there's regulation coming in from every angle at the moment. And at some point, there needs to be some sense of shared standards and shared goals with where we want this regulation to go globally. And part of that, right, is, I guess, being taken through in G7 Hiroshima process. Uh, And I think there was a separate panel on that with the architect of that regime talking about how it could be extrapolated and kind of made more widely applicable. But again, uh, talking to the Japanese, they were saying, um, we're never really going to see realistically full regulatory AI alignment between the US Europe, Asia, there's just different values. People want different things from the technology. There's different levels of technology development. And so they were saying perhaps we should be focusing instead on things like data free flows, data trusts, and more of the kind of underpinning things rather than prescriptive AI legislation. 
But anyway, at risk of turning this into a podcast just about AI, um, I want to quickly <laughs> cover some of the, the other things that were discussed as well in terms of tech regulation. So you cover a lot of our online safety work, particularly in the UK. So I know you attended a few different panels related to that and events around that. We've had a year of particularly in Europe, policy and regulatory change with regard to the Online Safety Act, the EU's Digital Services Act coming into effect as well. Do you think that was reflected in conversations at Davos or was all of this swept away given the focus on AI? Within the main Congress Centre itself, so this is the official Congress Centre that the WEF run, which it's typically very difficult to get a pass for. As I say, only 3,000 people or so will actually attend that and the vast uh, a range of others will go to other fringe events. At those fringe events, there was a lot of discussions around um, online safety, around digital wellness. I attended some of the launch events around the Human Change Campaign, which was launched at Davos. The thing that I really noted was the international comparison around online safety, and especially a lot of the Americans pointing to the success of the UK and the EU in implementing their respective online safety acts the age-appropriate design codes, things like this, showing that social media, online platforms, this sort of whole arena can be regulated and can be tackled. And a big question of why America hasn't been able to really grasp this. Uh, there's been efforts to bring the age-appropriate design code over to certain states like California, but it's been stuck in judicial concerns and issues. The Kids Online Safety Act in the US has been proposed and there's support across both of the Republicans and Democrats. But there's a real question of just whether it will ever actually get over the line and whether they'll actually ever be able to agree to the detail of it. And one of the other conversations that I found particularly interesting was about what is this next arena of harm? What is the next sort of area of online safety and concern that we should be focused on? All the major sort of platforms are referenced and discussed as sort of places that we already know that there is some level of harm on that needs to be regulated or addressed. But what's next? What is this next sort of generation of platforms and online content that we're going to have to try and adapt to and predict and ensure regulation covers as well. And in addition to just getting into the policy weeds, which I think is always easy for us to do, I would just be interested to know what your sense was of who actually attended. So we saw a lot of the big AI names, OpenAI's CEO Sam Altman there, but also, for example, DeepMind COO and various other of the AI labs. I think Palantir's Alex Karp was speaking at the Axios event as well. On the social media side, did we have the Zuckerbergs, et cetera, of the world at Davos, or did they skip it this year? By the looks of it, they mostly skipped it. I mean, as you say, Sam Altman was the person to meet, it seemed, at this year's Davos, but no presence of Mark Zuckerberg, no presence of TikTok CEO show, Snapchat CEO likewise didn't seem to be there, no Elon Musk. These sort of major social media platforms didn't have as much presence this year as they typically do. The Meta House on the Promenade was there as ever. The Google House, Microsoft Office was there. And to their credit, Microsoft were there in full effect. Satya Nadella and Brad Smith were both in attendance at Davos. But a lot of these sort of big tech names that you often see in the news didn't seem to be attending this year's Davos, which I thought was interesting to note. And as you say, it was a sort of next generation of tech leaders in terms of AI and compute and crypto to an extent that were really pushing and looking to make their presence felt at Davos. And crypto is an interesting one, actually. I would like to dwell on that because I guess just days before Davos kicked off, the US SEC approved the trading of investment funds backed by Bitcoin, which is obviously a big win for them. But previously, we'd heard Crypto, they were sort of dead, I guess, of all of the FTX controversy. 
So did you see many crypto firms there? Were there many policy discussions around that area? So there was definitely a presence of crypto firms at Davos this year. Circle had a really prominent place on the promenade again, same as last year. But notably, last year, crypto was a massive part of the focus of Davos. And effectively, every other shop storefront on the promenade was a crypto company, it seemed. This year, there didn't seem to be as much focus on it. I mean, there were a few choice quotes that I picked up across Davos. I think JP Morgan's CEO, James Dimon, described Bitcoin as a pet rock that does nothing but aid fraudsters and money launderers. And again, there seemed to be quite a lot of concern and not that much certainty about the future of crypto, especially after FTX founder Sam Bankman-Freud's dramatic rise and fall. I think, again, there's still the scepticism around crypto and its future in the financial industry. So it definitely was present here at Davos, and there were definitely discussions taking place. Whether they were able to rise above the AI debate and the broader sort of conversations about that, I don't really know personally. I guess for some in an industry that has been so rocked with controversy over the recent years, being described as a pet rock is perhaps a good thing. I think it was Ripple's global head of public policy who was actually saying maybe being boring is a good thing, particularly to evade some of the the scrutiny of uh, policymakers. Okay, so as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you a bonus question, which is for those who plan to go next year, which do you think are the events that people should be focusing on? Where is the place to be? Um, so I do think part of this question goes down to what you want to get out of Davos. Um, yeah, that's fair if, enough. <laughs> if you want to attend some really interesting discussions, merely meet some really interesting people, nothing really beats the Congress Hall itself. I mean, WEF are very exclusive on who attends the panels there. They hold several private discussions with government ministers, CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world. But beyond that, the Davos Fringe has only grown and grown. And some of these fringe events are just as good as the, some of the events within the Congress Hall. I mean, you had a fireside chat with the Microsoft CEO with Sam Altman, which was incredibly well attended. The Salesforce party is always one to look out for, as is the Politico party with the famous sledge run down slopes of Davos, which we were lucky enough to give a go this year. And I hasten to add, we both managed to remain on our sleds. Which just is... about, just about. <laughs> but it also depends on your sector and what you want to get out of it. For example, the Goals House do a lot of really interesting events on sustainability. They did an AI house night in which we ran into Princess Beatrice, which was always an interesting one. But the amount and the, the variety of events at Davos is always really quite impressive. It's just about cutting through and working out what you actually want to go to and what you can actually get out of it, which I think is the most important. And perhaps then that already answers what was going to be my final question, which was uh, if you had one piece of advice for companies thinking about going to Davos next year, particularly perhaps for those who are going there for the first time, what would it be? It might seem self-explanatory, but planning early, basically. I mean, hotels, locations, offices for Davos. Most companies will probably be looking now to 2025 and booking them because if it went well this year, then they'll just plan to use the same places again next year. And at the end of the day, this is a very small village in the Swiss Alps. It's quite difficult logistically to get to, to organize things at. I mean, we had the tunnel to Davos blocked for several hours by protesters. It's a three-hour journey from Zurich minimum. It's a difficult place to get to and to get around to. And planning ahead, getting there on the ground maybe a little bit earlier having people with you who've been to Davos before and who know how it works, because 
it is truly a unique international conference and is incredibly different to the way that uh, the UN or COP is run. And just knowing how to navigate the town itself, but also navigate the World Economic Forum, the organizers, and the broader people there as part of the ecosystem is just incredibly important. Great. Thank you very much. I think from my own side, it would probably be to pack good shoes. Um, as Josh <laughs> knows, uh, I wore my snow boots for pretty much every day, apart from when going to one meeting where I thought it'd be wise to, to change into something else and then proceeded to fall over about 15 minutes into that journey. So um, if you want to avoid being one of those people slipping down the icy slopes of Davos, would recommend practical shoes. On that note, great to have you, Josh. Thank you very much for, for sharing your insights. And as always, for those listening, if you're interested to find out more um, or potentially thinking about attending Davos yourself next year, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. And you can find contact details for Josh and myself on the GC website at www.globalcouncil.com. Thank you very much.